Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of OK Now What? Uh, today, uh, for the first part of this podcast, we have Thomas and Robin and our guest, Jen Perelman. Um, today, uh, for the first part of the, of the episode, we will be talking about the current events happening in uh, Palestine and Israel. Um, and then the second part of the episode will be an interview with um, Elizabeth and I, and we will be interviewing Sheila McCormick, who's running for Congress in Florida's 20th. Our- Woo, Sheila! Yes! <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and get started. So during the week, um, there have been increasing, increasing tensions with Israel and Palestine to where there involved um, violence and there um, has now, I think, believe the death tolls over 100 and mostly children have been uh, affected by this as well. This comes with um, a history of violence and apartheid in the area and um, I want to go ahead and open up the panel to, I want to get everyone's thoughts on this first, and then we'll go right into the conversation of it. Do you want me to go? Oh, uh, do you want to go starting? Okay, am I, first of all, am I the token Jew? Am I token tribe here right now? I mean, <clears throat> I think it's me. me too, but you're the token Jew. <laughs> okay, just checking on that. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I keep... Um, getting further and further away from how I was raised in terms of, you know, I was raised by my grandparents' generation was very post-Holocaust, very PTSD, fear-based concept. Um, And that was passed down like a collective trauma. And that's how I was raised, right? So there's this idea, we were raised that if there's no Israel, there's no safe place for Jews, and 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 it really was very ingrained in us it wasn't it's again this is fear-based not reason and obviously now as i'm older i recognize the the fallacy in that and and i understand that but that is where this comes from when it comes to the people at least here that are pro-israel it is very fear-based almost ingrained in jewish upbringing about the state of Israel. So I just want to, I'm not excusing it as is okay, but I'm just saying that's where it's from. Um, I tend to stop. This is, first of all, let me be clear. This is not a conflict. That implies there's two sides of approximately same influence, same way. This is not a conflict. Um, this is a controlled massacre. That's always what it is. Um, whenever there's an incident, you can b- better believe that it is being instigated and supported by the state of Israel to create or manufacture consent for an aggression. Um, that's usually how this works. And to think of it anywhere near an equal uh, situation is really misleading. And, and that's generally the way it's presented. Oh, shots from both sides. It's a clash between two parties. No. No, no, it's a clash like if you had like a 21-year-old fighting with a three-year-old. Um, and then you would say, yeah, but the, but the three-year-old's fighting back. Look, the three-year-old's punching and all this stuff. So that's what we're dealing with here. So those are, those are my thoughts. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Robin, go ahead. I, yeah, it's, you know, I'm fairly new. I'm fairly, I'm still like researching and the intricacies of this 
I don't want to say issue because it's not an issue. This apartheid, basically. Um, but it's always been free Palestine for me. And then delving deeper into the in intricacies of this <clears throat> issue, all I see is like propaganda, right? Like how John was saying, it's, it's, oh, Hamas is this like terrorist organization. Look what we're doing. It's, you know, we're protecting ourselves. And like, I was going deeper and deeper into it. And it's like, I saw like propaganda where it's like, oh, Palestinians use other Palestinians as human shields, but there's no evidence of that. Or Israel has a right to defend itself against, against what? Like, again, against what children like we on twitter right now i saw that they just decimated al jazeera's building they like bombed in it's like completely gone and that's attack on the free press if they're doing nothing wrong why would you attack the free press mm -hmm. and i'm excited for t this conversation i'm excited to learn more and sort of just let people know that an apartheid state isn't a just democracy it's really not they it's even going deep into their democracy it's like if you're an arab national you have less rights than a jewish national or if you're a druze you have less rights it, that's not a democracy not everyone has the same rights and i feel like i'm ranting a bit so i'm going to sort of pass it on um i'll go ahead and i'll give my thoughts and move on to thomas and honey, this is okay now. What this is what we do, we rant. Um, but for me, I'm also fairly new um, to um, the events. I want to say, I think I never even heard of the nation Palestine until probably 2018. And I feel like that is a lot of people um, when it comes to um, other people knowing about what's going on. And it and and what, Jen, when you mentioned earlier, when you uh, you you said that um, people believe that if there is no state for uh, for the Jewish people, then they're not going to be safe. I believed in that too, uh, because you know I, the Holocaust was a terrible, terrible you know event that happened, and Jews have been historically persecuted throughout time throughout the centuries so yeah it would probably make sense to give them a homeland um but you are were also correct they used fear in order to do that so then that and and when, when you have that and then you have their actions um on basically um when i was reading up i saw these maps of Jewish occupation. When I saw the very first approved map in 1948, it was approved by the UN. That was a great compromise. It was, you, okay, yeah, you still had Palestine in two different spots, but at least Jerusalem was supposed to be an international area and that, and you didn't have one nation being a hundred different spots like it currently is now. That doesn't make sense. You know why they do that, right? <clears throat> oh, yeah, because you had, um, later on, you had um, Jews going into, um, or, or not, uh, is, is, is Israelites going into, Israelites, Israelis, I'm sorry. I'm going all <laughs> Bible. I'm going all bible now. Um, Israelis going into those neighborhoods and 
um, settling there, but there's also more more to that. Jen, did you want to add or? Well, I just want to say they're strategically doing it to impede the, um, the Palestinians' ability to coalesce. So every time that they put a new settlement that blocks and they don't have free transportation. So yeah. if you're a Palestinian in point A and there's a Jewish settlement between you and Palestinian, you know, area B, you can't just go there. So you can't form coalitions and you can't be a base of anything. So that's why they're they're doing it to keep them all apart. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it is purposeful. It is purposeful. And so now I just see a, a, an oppressive government attacking a group of people. That's what I see. And what really angers me is that you have... A, a group of people who were oppressed and now they're doing the oppressing. That's I know. And I will, I will continue to say this and I've literally been called anti-Semitic for saying this, but the extreme right-wing Israelis, I will continue to co uh, compare them to Nazis because you are literally dragging people from their homes that's what happened to the Jewish people in the 1930s. And if people can't see that, then you are blind. But Thomas, I wanted to get your thoughts. I'm so sorry I rambled on. No, you're right. No, it's, no, it's completely rational. Um, uh, before before I sort of go into this, like I, I this particular this particular subject is probably one of the most cancelable subjects. Like like I think people when people talk about can like cancel culture, I feel like this is like the most like this will literally get you barred from like publications and 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 working at news outlets. Um, so many people I like I, I just off the bat just I mean uh, put it this way uh, the ex label leader Jeremy Corbyn like was literally decimated yep. over his stance on this it literally it to the point where the, the british media went all out calling him an anti-semite mm -hmm. because of his stance on palestine um and it, it pretty much well it, it did it tanked it, it, it tanked happened it. to ilhan omar too when she was talking yes. about but they were so they were so brutal about it like it wasn't just it wasn't just like maybe one newspaper it was every single newspaper it was as if the western apparatus decided he is not suitable he needs to go because of his just because of his stance on that one issue and so when i when we talk about this we need to understand that that western media and western uh just just in general like uh, the you can't have uh, a viewpoint Israel is wrong and uh, that is that is entrenched into the media in the West particularly you can say you can say you can critique Israel but you have to uh, first admit that Hamas is a problem before you even start to critique Israel and you also have to say that um, there's conflict like like you said uh, Jen there's conflict on both sides but you can't yeah. you can't you can't stick up for Palestine without even admitting that first off the bat or saying that off the bat um, so I just want to but I want to go back to a few points Robin you made a point about the uh, Al Jazeera um, building being uh, blown up and um, what's the first thing a country does when they go to when they go to, with a ground invasion? They shut off all communication. 
and so this this is a this is a worrying sight to see. To be honest, I, I really hope this doesn't happen. But the first thing a country does when they enter an, a ground invasion or or escalate further is they cut off all communication, and that's what I mean. That's what we saw with that happening. Um, and Jen, you made the point about um, uh, like. Jew Jewish people wanting a, a homeland for for their people, and and that and that and that's you know um, I, I I look back to what Noam Chomsky said. You know he said that he uh, the Zionism back you know back when he was uh, considered a Zionist, um, he he said it's often to something completely different than what than what the, his original or the original version of what he thought it was meant to be, which was to give the Jewish people a homeland. And what it's turned into is this, like, Jewish nationalism, um, that this far-right nationalism, which has turned into this sort of ethno-state, uh, for a better word. Um, and I think the problem is, like, when people... people uh, The reason why anti-Semitism, I, I think, the reason why anti-Semitism gets lumped into all this is because, you're right, like, Jewish people... Um, particularly uh there's not been a moment in history where they haven't been persecuted and so it's it's like um and i think uh, the west particularly i think after especially after world war ii has this i don't know they they uh they they some they feel bad for the holocaust and rightly so they should be because the reality is is that uh if you look if you look at the history after world war ii they, they weren't willing to accept them as refugees which is just horrendous but that that's that's the history of the united states that's the history of my home country when 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 uh, jews tried to try to leave uh, or to go somewhere else after world war ii they were refused they were told they weren't allowed to come um and so you can understand where this the you can understand why they wanted their own homeland but the reality is um like you say greg that it's more uh, this this has morphed into uh, an ideology of, of Jewish nationalism, which has then morphed into a like an ethno <clears throat> um agenda. And like you can't like we we have to be very clear that you know by all means like uh, uh, Jewish people have a right to self determination, but that doesn't mean Palestinian people don't have a right to self determination. They don't have a, that doesn't mean they don't have a right to human rights. It doesn't mean that you can just go into somewhere and upend people's homes, people's livelihoods, like, like. But anyway, I'm I'm going on now. Um, but uh, oh, that, thank you for that. Trust. <clears throat> um, so, my my next part is, um, what should what should we um be doing? I mean. Okay, yeah, this is happening, and obviously the Biden administration is not doing a thing about it. Well, they've been very clear on that. Um, and you know, yeah, it, it was great to have you know members of Congress speak out against this. But what do we? What should we be doing other than just speaking out about this as a country? Like, what should the country be doing to make this a better situation? Well. One of the things that we're dealing with that's not getting talked about enough is there's now, I believe it's 30 states that have anti-BDS legislation on their books. Mm -hmm. And this is a really scary thing, regardless of what we're talking about. Just it's so anti our First Amendment rights and to, to have that. And it's been happening pretty 
um, insidiously, like people aren't really paying attention to it happening and other things are going on. And that, hence why we now have 30 states all of a sudden that have anti-BDS legislation, meaning that people that want to do business with the state or sign contracts with the state or work for a county or whatever it is, have to essentially promise and swear that they don't support BDS. Now, granted, you could just lie. I mean, you know, you, you could, but that's not the point. And the fact that this is a thing here is something that is what we really need to be fighting against here because that will, but one, it's standing up for our freedom of speech here, but two, it's going to continuously bring up and dredge up and bring attention to the issue of what is going on in Israel. Because, I mean, it, it's so, other than having protests and marches, there really isn't a whole lot we can do. And that's why BDS is the, you know, machine that it is. And that's what they're scared of. Because if that takes hold, that is really going to be the one, th that's what worked for South Africa. That's what happened. That's how eventually we ended apartheid yeah. in South Africa. So they don't want that. So it's sort of like if you follow the chain of events, the first part of the chain is we're being suppressed from even participating in the, in the effort to change things. So I think we have to unravel it from the beginning from in our country and bring awareness about the anti-BDS um, laws. So that would be sort of like my like the way to kind of start the process to get us where we need to go. I don't know if that's, is that logical? No. Um, sorry, go on, grab. Oh, no, go for it. No, I was going to say, like, it's, it's funny, it's funny, but like, a lot of, uh, and, and this is just, this isn't just uh, the rights, like a lot of liberals have this mindset of like non-violence. So they say like, okay, like we just don't want violence on both sides. So I'm like, okay, all right. So we can't, uh, we, uh, Palestinian people can't defend themselves, apparently, because it involves uh, having to use weaponry or, you know, if someone blows down my house, I can't, I can't then retaliate, apparently. So then we come up with a solution. All right, let's do this non-violently. Let's do it from, from, uh, uh, from what, well, what grew out of it was BDS, a, a form of uh, non-violence uh, protest, economic protest. And you go, oh, no, you can't do that either apparently and so now it's like it's almost like oh well we just want you to shut up and die then because that's that's the reality that's what they're telling you they're saying you can't you can't you can't resist this uh you can't resist this violently and you can't resist this peacefully through bds and so uh jen you're absolutely right like uh People make a lot of comparisons to South African apartheid, but the reality is that the first thing we need to do, in my opinion, my home country, England, um, uh, just to put it in perspective, really, England has sold 400 million pounds worth of weaponry to Israel since 2015, right? And so the reality is we need to, uh, the first thing we should be doing is putting an embargo on military equipment. Like we should be saying at least saying or conditioning israel aid based on how, how based on what they're doing that's yeah like no i agree minimum. definitely that's the, bare, that's the bare minimum yeah. in my opinion we just shouldn't be doing it at all yeah. but the reality is is that <laughs> that's probably not going to happen so we just we need to at least get a condition saying okay we're not going to sell you anything unless you stop doing this unless you stop doing the um uh, building encampments and and throwing Palestinian people out of their homes and you know doing 
basically ethnic cleansing, which is what they're doing right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go on, Greg. <clears throat> I want to go ahead and pass this up to uh, Robin as well. Um, now, I there are, uh, Jen, you did mention <clears throat> there are quite a few um, uh, anti-BDS uh, legislation on the books. Um, and you know, Robin, you are um, a delegate to the California Democratic Party. Do you think that there is any way um, that at least the California Democratic Party can get involved to making, you know, sure that we as a country shouldn't be even be involved with Israel at this point? I think it'd be hard as I consider myself to be more progressive than a progressive Democrat, obviously, which is why I'm on this show. Um, but I feel like it's going to be pulling teeth because if uh, if you go through and you look through like uh, these Democratic electeds, Twitters and their statements, it's the, you know, like Jen was saying, it's like from both sides, like, you know, they both need to stop that, you know, like Palestinians are attacking Israel too. And like Israel has a right to defend itself so i feel like it's going to take a lot of shifting the narrative like even if i talk to other delegates it's the whole no. like you know you're you're being anti-semitic if you if you criticize israel and i don't think i'm anti-semitic i think i'm anti-zionist and if you if you look at it you know i can't even say the word right now but it was only created like what a couple hundred years ago maybe like 500 years ago 200 years ago Jen could maybe correct me on that but I think it's going to be like pulling teeth honestly but I'm pushing for it there's a bunch of other delegates who are calling for you know divest, um, divesting from the whole we're supporting pro BDS legislation and um, platform for the Democratic Party but it's going to be I personally I feel like it's going to be pulling teeth because Democrats aren't any better on this issue. Yeah. Um, I want to go ahead and move the conversation towards uh, what happened this week was um, there was this um, CNN and I believe he showed up on MSNBC. Mm. These two interviews with Mohammed Al-Kurd who uh, is a Palestinian activist in Palestine and he went on um, to, you know, make th these appearances and pushed back on that narrative of the two sides. And he pushed back that, no, Palis uh, Palestinians have a right to defend themselves as well. And he was asked, do you support the violent protests that are happening uh, um, with Palestinians? He pushed back by saying, do you support the... Um, uh, the, do you do you support the displacement of me and my family? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, he was then later attacked and evicted from home. Mm -hmm. um, that enraged me even more because again, if you if the the uh, state of Israel is all good and everything, freedom of speech wouldn't matter, right? You know that. If you, if you were so pure and awesome and great, why would you have a problem with that? So, Jen, I wanted to get your thoughts and reaction of what happened and then, yeah. 
you know, the, unfortunately the story that you were talking, the particular story you're talking about, I'm not even really familiar. I'm not sure if I know what, what that is. I mean, my understanding of this most recent conflict had to do with uh, Israeli authorities going to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and just starting to harass people. And But really, whatever it is, and honestly, it could be any scenario. It could be whatever your scenario, whatever, it doesn't matter. This is Israel picking fights to justify a further aggression. This is Israel picking fights. That's all it is. So it could be uh, you know, one individual has some sort of situation inside East Jerusalem and they make a big deal of that or whatever it is. Um, this is just violent imperialism. And when we talk about, um, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot, what Thomas was saying about conditioning aid to Israel. And I agree we should do that with anybody we're giving money to. Yeah. But what's so pathetic and, and hypocritical about it is that we're conditioning money for countries on the things that we're doing in other places anyway, yeah. right? So, yeah. so like when you look at what <laughs> Israel is doing, it's, they're just us. They're just another arm of the imperialist empire. It doesn't really matter if, if it's our flag or their flag or flag. It's all the same thing. It's oppressing poor and vulnerable peoples for natural resources, for wealth, for power, whatever it is. And so, you know, yeah, we should condition money to places we give money to, but we are doing it ourselves. So, I, I mean, we're just, um, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. It's like we could punish Israel, but really Israel is just a tentacle of us. That that's sort of my my exactly. point. Exactly. I mean, why invest three billion dollars a year on that? You know, I, I'm I'm losing the interest to do so as time goes on. From, I, you know, from what you just said, it looks like the main problem is imperialism, modern yes. colonialism. Uh, we are going into other countries and stealing from um native people of 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 their country of their resources so yeah i mean it never ended so yeah um wow shit damn i think uh noam, noam chomsky said it he said this is like the final form of colonialism like this is like in its final stage like this is this is where it, this is where it inevitably ends up um, yeah we are and genuinely absolutely right the united states I mean, look, the, the history of Israel and Palestine go, dates back to the British, I mean, my home country. Like, we'd, we really messed up that region. Like, that, that is literally all down to us, what we did, um, um, unfortunately. And it's, it's it, and again, at that period of time, Britain was an empire. And it, like all, like all good empires, they, they, they want to do it on the cheap. And rather than having to actually occupy and and uh, over, rule over an actual region, why don't you just get someone else to do it for you? And and this is where this is where the uh, this is where Israel comes into play, where United States interests are um, enacted by at the behest of um, Israel in in the Middle Eastern region. So uh, there's a reason there's a reason why the United States, particularly. Uh, countries that have a colonial past is a reason why they veto every single uh, uh, thing that comes out of the UN when it comes to making a, a statement, when it comes to actually trying to solve this crisis. If you look at every single vote in the United Nations, uh, usually every single time the US will veto it or 
or say no to it or like anything to hold them accountable, anything to stop this. You can bother how the UN. Well, exactly. Well, Well, that's it. I feel like that. Why? Exactly correct. (laughs) Why do we have that? And and then you could also say, you know, why do we bother having a lot of that? Why do we have two different political parties when neither of them represent labor? Yeah. They both represent the same people. What are they doing there? So I I don't know. It's all kind of like just it's political theater, Mm. you know, and it keeps everybody stewing about not really paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the UN, there was a, uh, I just saw it on, again, like Twitter and then like going through like my news feeds, it was where the UN put a solution or a proposal calling on Israel and Palestine to do a ceasefire. In my opinion, it should just be Israel calling the ceasefire. Um, you mean they but, don't want the Palestinians to set tires on fire anymore and throw them exactly. over the fence as their main form of weaponry? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I... I was just like, Israel has, like, missiles, and, like, yeah. what? They have the Palestinian missiles are, like, glorified fireworks. I was like, my yeah. God, but then... I but, actually but... think when there are Israeli casualties, I actually think it's their, they want there to be. Exactly. Um, I don't so think it's an oversight. Fire, right? yeah. I don't think it's negligence. I don't think it's an oversight. I think Israel, they are so defended like militarily, like they are so state of the art. So when something happens that crosses through, it isn't an oversight and that it's a justification for something else. So I actually believe that any of the other stuff coming from the other side is, is actually part of the intent of Israel. Exactly. So they can defend, defend their next steps. Like, okay, like, you know, they, this missile like killed, like, I don't want to say killed, but like did property damage or had some casualties. Okay, we're going to go like occupy this next territory or we're going to go look at the headlines. Look at the headlines and specifically in this country, how bad it is. The headlines here will always focus on the one, the uh, older woman and her daughter or something, and the Israeli, they were killed in their apartment. And that is a horrible thing. I am not saying it's not a horrible thing, but that would be the headline versus uh, a bus of 30 children in Gaza got demolished. And yeah. so that's just how it is. And, and if, so they need those headlines. And that's how come I actually think a lot of that's intentional. Yeah. I was just going to add, you know, I don't know if you remember, the 2014 Gaza war, mm-hmm. like to, to put it in perspective, like they, they were literally running out of munitions because they were firing so many bullets, right? And then what did they do? They asked... For more munitions for the United States, and the United States is more than happy to give them more munitions. Like at a time where they were literally just like thousands of people, thousands of Palestinian people died compared to if you compare the numbers to Israel, it's absolutely staggering, right? And so this, you, Jen, you made a good point earlier about how it's literally like a twenty-one-year-old fighting a three-year-old. Like they, 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 they might, they like to make out like, oh, well, you know, Hamas is firing rockets, thousands of rockets back at us. So, you know, we need to deal with, we need to deal, we need to, like, we have a right to defend ourselves. Like, right. Okay. But the, the violence is so disproportionate. Mm. Like, you know, um, I, I can't, I can't remember the date or someone, I was watching a stream and the guy was on about uh, an Israeli soldier literally had a scratch on his face and then in response, what they did is they literally went and killed a bunch of Palestinians, like hundreds of Palestinians in response. Like a soldier literally just 
got his face scratched, and then Israel decided to go in and kill hundreds of Palestinian people in response. And so that's that's the level of fear and outright uh, uh, just brutality of this situation. Like um, people forget, like Gaza, for example, is bordered by land, air, and sea. There's no way out. It's a, a like it's a literal definition of an open air prison. And the United States likes to say that China is doing this open air prison when we're literally funding. A direct example of what is considered to be an open air prison by United by United Nations. I mean, I mean the UN, like the the rest of the world, like they consider this a war crime. But apart from but apart from the United States, and apart and it happens to be United States, UK, Canada, Australia. Um, I can't really one France. No, basically all these countries have a history of colonialism, and it's very it's very evident that the. the these are the ones that are protecting Israel's interests. At the end of the day, it's it's imperialism, and that and that's what that, that's what it is. It's imperialism. It's apartheid. It's it shouldn't be happening. Um, but Jen, thank you so much for joining us on the panel. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Jen, go ahead and um, shout out your podcast once more. Yeah, so you guys can find us on Generational Change, J-E-N with a J, Generational Change. And we do two live streams a week. We do Monday and Thursday nights, but you can always catch our stuff on YouTube, Spotify, or iTunes. And um, yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, now we're going to go ahead and do this interview part of the podcast. Uh, we have Sheila McCormick, who is running in Florida's 20th district, correct? Yes. Florida's 20th, although they are going through some redistricting stuff, so we'll see what number you get. <laughs> um, uh, this part of the episode, folks, we have me, Greg, and Elizabeth, uh, and we're going to go ahead and get this interview started. So how are you doing, Sheila? I'm good. I'm excited to be here on this call. I know we're on the Eastern time, and you guys are in California, and I love California, so I'm a little bit jealous there. I see the sun out and everything, and we're here in the dark. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hot as hell as always. Um, so I want to go ahead and have you introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What are you running on? Where are you running? And yeah, how about it? <laughs> okay. Well, um, my name is Sheila Sherfless McCormick, and I am running for Congress in District Twenty in um, Florida, which encompasses Broward and Palm Beach County. I actually started this journey of running for Congress in 2018. Um, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a healthcare advocate, and I also am a healthcare executive. I've been um, the CEO of a small company, healthcare company, where we have a vocational school, and we also have been providing um, healthcare into the community to ensure that healthcare disparities were not um, becoming barriers for more people. And I actually got into advocating in Congress because of my daughter. Uh, while I was a single mother, go putting myself through law school, my daughter actually had a learning disability. And I didn't realize how hard it was to even access, you know, fundamental skills and training and even just anything for our children, the developmental skills necessary. And so I had to take time off of work. Um, I advocated everything to try and get her the resources and I couldn't get them. And so I went to talk to my congressman. Later on, I found out that my father was diagnosed with cancer at the same time my father-in-law was. My father's a doctor, so he drained his savings paying for his treatment. Whereas my father-in-law, who was a vet, he was a deacon in the church, just spent his whole life serving. 
he did not have enough money to have treatment until he died. And that just lit a fire in me that really upset me because the only real difference was money. And if you choose to serve your community, if you choose to join the military, if you choose just to live a life of service, it seems like you're not rewarded. And that angered me and I felt like it wasn't fair. And I said, I'm gonna run. And I went to DC and I lobbied again about healthcare inequality. And why is it that you get special treatment if you have money and you can pay for it? And I came back, I drove straight to Tallahassee and I filed. And that's how I started this journey. Upon the way, um, you know, this is 2018 when we were fighting for the election was 2018. So we started probably around 2017. And back then when you said Medicare for all, they thought we were crazy. <laughs> you know, that's, we were the lunatics, right? When you said we were progressive, they were like, oh, you're unrealistic, it's not gonna happen. Um, so when we talked about even the Green New Deal, it was crazy. But now we're looking at infrastructure deals that looks very similar to the um, Green New Deal. Um, Medicaid for all now is a community name. Like everybody knows that, everybody wants it. So I always say, when people ask me about this race, because there's 13 people running, um, how do you differentiate yourself? I always tell them, well, I'm the only one who had political courage when everybody was scared. When everybody was sitting around watching people die, when they saw us just unjustly being treated, payday lenders taking advantage of us, um, private prisons moving into our district, uh, just watching the whole gamut, everybody stay quiet. And now all of a sudden there's open seat and everyone wants to say, hey, I'm a progressive, I'm Medicare, Medicare, Medicare for all. Where were you in 2018, 19, 20? So that's what this election really is about for us. Who has the political courage to get into Congress and fight and continue to finish what we started? We started this progressive movement back in 2016, and now it's time for us to bring it to a culminating end by passing Medicaid for all, passing the Green New Deal, and really ensuring that economic justice is met. And that fight was started a long time ago by Martin Luther King, and it was never finished. So I truly believe this is our time as progressives to take our stand and say we were right from the beginning. We had the pulse of the people when everyone else was afraid and now everybody's adopting our, our policies. So let's finish this. I love that. Thank you so much for that. Elizabeth, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so I read, uh, first of all, Shayla, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for your campaign. I feel like it's true what you just mentioned that in 2018, when there was an incumbent, correct? Yes. No one is willing to step up and go up against the status quo, right? And I think the fact that you were the one that did step up does show tremendous courage and the courage that we actually need in the House um, of Representatives. Um, I guess my question would be, uh, I did see a little bit about your background and I saw that you do have experience in healthcare. And um, well, Medicare for all is, is really important to me because my mom is a domestic worker. So she's cleaned mm -hmm. houses here in California for 20, 25 plus years, 30 years, more than 30 years. And um, I've always seen it be hard for her to get access to healthcare. Um, and she has diabetes and she does take care of herself. And she does go here and there to the doctor, but she doesn't have access to like actual insurance or to like go every day or, you know, when she needs to. So like you mentioned, um, really the only thing keeping her away from there, sometimes it's 
or keeping her away from access to health care is the lack of money. So I, I know we used to have Medicare, I think it's Medi-Cal or is it Medicaid? I, I forget which one it is, but it used to go to age 62, I believe, and then they raised it up to age 65. And I think now, I think I heard that Biden is proposing age 55. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would love Medicare for all, but I think the reality of, you know, being the daughter of an immigrant is I'm at the point where I'll take anything to get mm -hmm. my mom health care. Um, so I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what do you think you can do once you get into the House of Representatives? And that would be my question. So um, I'm also the, I'm a first generation American and my parents both migrated here from Haiti. My father actually went to school and his mother's from Dominican Republic. And I remember when we were growing up um, and we were, I grew up in New York and in uh, my, Miramar in Broward. And we would have our neighbors come over and ask for, you know, medicine or see, he would see them because no one had a health insurance. And so the closest doctor there, they knock on your door and could you help us? Um, so I've always seen the issues. I even remember my uncle who one day he cleaned the entire bathroom with like bleach to help my dad service the people in the neighborhood in the bathroom because there was no health insurance. Um, and so that's when I started taking this thing seriously because I've seen it so much. And it wasn't until I actually got a job after law school that was paying me enough. And that was the first time I even had health insurance consistently. And it's a world of difference. And a lot of people don't understand what it, it lives like when you're trying to figure out your health and stay healthy enough to go to work versus when you can go to the doctor whenever you want to and not even have a co-payment. And that's where we really have to be. So uh, when we talk about Medicaid for all, it is possible. It is possible. But it takes someone who has the experience to actually push it and show how we can pay and how to start it. Right now, as it stands, the Medicare for All bill only has a four-year transition. What I'm proposing we can add to that is to open up a healthcare portal immediately. With that healthcare portal, you'll be able to talk to your doctor or primary care doctor. So if you have to go do blood work to get any kind of, um, when you do your blood work, you do your labs, they can see if you have diabetes, if you have high cholesterol, and then they can be able to prescribe to you, they just send you a prescription. So we have to start from some place. I don't think we can accept, okay, well, medical okay for all, can't work, and let's just try and bring it down to 55. We have to ask for more. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? This is the worst. And if in the worst, you can't cover us for at least like telemedicine, basic needs, there's something wrong with our country. We have to acknowledge that. We have been giving out food since the beginning of COVID. And our food lines, we gave out maybe over 10,000 hot meals. And I had people coming there asking me for insulin. I had people coming there asking me for health insurance. A lot of people don't know this, but most public hospitals, they have to service a certain amount of indigent or people give free health insurance or coverage. And I know the rule because I'm a specialist. And so we even had to call the hospitals. Could you insure this person? who really needs it. So I think what we're looking at is a lack of desire and a lack of knowledge on how to do it. And in Congress, that's the first thing we need to push, open up the portal until we get Medicaid for all. Yeah. And then um, I, I asked this next question um, because it, it had a lot of controversy, you know, 
people, it, it split up the left pretty bad, whether to force a vote on Medicare for all. Um, and I wanted to get your opinion on that. Like, should we continue be forcing a vote on Medicare for all or wait till the time is right? I don't know. What, what was your opinion on all that? The time is now. We must. We will, when we come out of a pandemic, that's the biggest catastrophe health care wise. If you can't push it, Norrin Gren, when we come out of this, they're going to definitely not give it to us. So this is where we fight. This is where we start introduce, introducing um, an evolution towards it. And that's what's really missing. They kind of make it seem like it's all or nothing. It should never be that case. There are ways for us to transition. So why is it everything or none? Let's start transitioning. Let's start opening up a portal. There's a lot of money that was put into telemedicine through the CARES Act, through the Rescue Act. So they are developing telemedicine portals where people can log into. But right now you have to have health insurance or you got to pay for it yourself. Why not allow people who need it to actually log in and talk to a doctor? We're pushing the vaccination, but there's people who are without health insurance. And after they take the vaccination, if they don't feel well, they feel a little woozy, guess what? They're left to fend for themselves. And that's not fair. But if you have health insurance, that and you, vaccine is going to stay free. Right, right. And so I think these are things we have to look at. Let's not forget what happened with Johnson & Johnson. With Johnson & Johnson, that first one dosage, a lot of people had adverse reactions or many had adverse reactions. If you had health insurance, you know what your experience was? You went to your doctor and he said, hey, we see something going on. If you didn't have health insurance, you know what your reaction was? You're at home trying to figure out how can I take care of myself? We shouldn't be living in this kind of world. Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to ask one more question. Um, this, uh, so I'm a stoner, okay? And, <laughs> you know, legalizing cannabis is uh, important to me. And it's important because, not just because I like smoking weed, but also, you know, people are being put, uh, put in prison for this. People um, are racially profiled because of weed. People are, are you know, are making money off of it while people are suffering from it. And I just wanted to hear your stance on um, legalizing weed and um, what should be included in the bill if, if it's ever I drafted. I definitely believe that we have to legalize cannabis, definitely. However, I do not believe in legalizing cannabis without us actually erasing and expunging people who have been arrested for marijuana mm -hmm. and releasing those who are sitting in prison right now because of marijuana. It's not fair. And right yeah. now there's a lot of states that are making a lot of money. They're positioning their own people to, to get those um, contracts, to get the the means to have the licenses so they can make billions of dollars while different groups, black and brown especially, have been targeted, have been profiled, are still in prison, still have records and can't get jobs and some can't even vote. So we have to put these things hand in hand. If we're going to legalize marijuana and you guys are going to become billionaires, free the people, the people who went to jail, the people who you targeted. It has to come hand in hand. And on top of that, there's an economic justice issue also. Because in states like my own in Florida, for you to even get a license, you have to be a billionaire. They only gave seven. So why are you holding the market so you're so you can have a monopoly with your seven buddies 
and that chases directly to Rick Scott. Why is he in Senate fighting to hold it, to hold it and not open up the licensing? So there's a lot of inequality that comes into marijuana and cannabis that I don't believe everybody's aware of. And even some members in Congress aren't fighting adamantly about it. And we have to take these issues seriously. This is a social justice issue. This is an economic justice issue. And it's also a health issue because we know for sure that cannabis helps with different healthcare, healthcare issues. And even when it comes to rehabilitation, right? So this is a threefold issue that we have to actually take it serious because in some places, if you have enough money, they have been using medical marijuana for how long mm -hmm. versus regular people who need it and we can't don't have access. So right now, the mar medical marijuana bi um, business, cannabis, is really an elitist market where you get to enjoy it. And if you're not elitist or if you don't have the money, you're, you're targeted. It's still yeah. bad. There's a stigma attached and we have to change that. Exactly. Amen to that. Elizabeth, go ahead and um, ask away. I also saw that you support some sort of basic income. Um, yeah. I would like to know more about that. I think it was really <clears throat> good that this time that we had a uh, catastrophe in our society with the economy, that people did receive stimulus check, which I was really relieved to, to see because I remember 2008, 2009, and we could have given, as a country, we could have given a lot of relief then, uh, but unfortunately, we, I don't know for what reasons we didn't. And a lot of people lost their homes. They lost their entire life savings. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that, but I haven't because I had a lot of friends <laughs> whose parents lost their home. So um, yeah, what, what is your like proposed UBI? And maybe explain to people who don't know what basic income is, you know, why we need it and probably why we will need it in the future as automation comes in. Yeah. Right. So great. You know, this is my favorite thing just because I like policy. Uh, so we have a people's prosperity plan and it is your universal basic income. We took a slightly different position and that's why we renamed it. Because when we talked to the people in the community and we said UBI, they're like, UB what? <laughs> they had no idea. So I was like, let me make it simple. It's an economic uh, recovery check, right? So you could recover economically. And how we define it is we're going to be providing $1,000 a month for anybody 18 and over who makes less than $75,000. The biggest question with UBI is how do you fund it? And so we spent night and day looking at funding sources. And we said, you know what, if we were able to start taxing people at a 5% rate who are heading more towards um, automation, uh, which does nothing for the regular person, just takes your job away from you, and they increase their profit margins. Well, we, I think you should be taxed. And if we could tax them at 5%, we're looking at an extra $400 billion into that budget that we can pay UBI. Then we would look at the people who are selling private information. You know, every time you say, hey, Siri, or you walk by with your phone and you say something and then all of a sudden you're on like Facebook or Instagram and you're like, why do I keep seeing this red car? It's because you said it. That kind of private information is being sold. If we were to tax them at a 5% rate, we see that we can make at least $200 billion for people who are selling private information. Selling private information is what leads us susceptible to all kinds of fraud and abuse. So these industries are able to grow and terrorize us as they may. Nobody taxes them and they say, oh, but we can't give you any kind of recovery. No, we can only give you two or three stimulus checks. Meanwhile, when it came to bailing out the Wall Street or big businesses, how much money did they really get? So it's just not fair. We need to have a continuous people's bailout. They're saying that for us to recover from COVID, it can take anywhere to 10 years. 
So we get three checks and it's going to take 10 years to recover. We have to question what we're doing now and actually prioritize the people's recovery. Yeah. And then I wanted to ask because, well, you, the U in UBI is universal. So some people, when they have proposed UBI, it's like anyone 18 or older, regardless of how much you make, you know, would you mm -hmm. support that? No, I think we have to put a cap on it right now until we can find the full funding for it. And that's important because the way that a lot of our arguments are discounted, they're like, oh, there's no funding for it. Let's throw it out the, the window. And a lot of times when they do that, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's a great idea. We need it. It's necessary. So let's not pigeonhole us ourselves into a place where they can just discount us. So I think we have to have caps. And as we find more funding sources, we can expand it. Awesome. Well, to go ahead and close off the interview, um, go ahead and shout out your website, social media, and ways that we can help you get elected. Well, you can definitely find me on shillaforcongress.com, or you can even reach me by cell phone, which is 954-668-5358. And I thank you guys so much for having me. Um, it was a great conversation. And I love the fact that you guys know my girl, Christine. She is actually my, <laughs> she's my neighbor. And we're both oh, also, nice. from, yes, and we're from Haitian descent. So, you know, that's my homie, Christine. And we're, we're fighting. You know, we need to get more progressives elected in Florida, especially since our state is red. And there's all kinds of stuff going on here. And this is the, this is our turning point. You know, this election, this special election, this is what turns the key and unlocks all of us. So we're really pushing and we need volunteers to help us push that message. My election is November 2nd. After that, November 2nd, 2021 is the primary. Whoever wins the primary is going to win the election. The actual election is going to be January 11th. So once we set that off, that's going to trigger everybody else's elections that are coming in August, primaries that are coming in August. And so this is a very huge election so we can usher in a new wave of progressives in the state of Florida. Well, I'm happy to help. Let me know how I can help you, okay? Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks. And that concludes this week's episode of Okay, Now What? Check us out on social media. The description's below. And Sheila's info is in the description as well. Take care, folks, and have a great evening.